want to hurt no one. We're here for the bank's money, not your money. Your money is insured by the federal government. You're not going to lose a dime. Think of your families. Don't risk your life. Don't try and be a hero. Right now, I want you to sit on the floor and put your hands on your head. Anybody feel sick? Anybody got heart trouble? Go ahead and lean against the wall. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically we talk about a movie that at least one of us on the show has never seen before. Uh, I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 62, and the movie this week was 1995's Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. My guest, who had never seen it before, from Two Peas No Podcast, is Gerald Morris. How you doing, Gerald? What's up, Travis? How you doing, brother? Such a shame, right? How did I not see this? That's my question. How how did you go this long without seeing it? <laughs> That's the premise of your show, right? Yeah. That's why I'm here. Uh, yeah, man, I, I don't know how I missed this one for so many years, but thanks to you and my guilt weighing on me, I finally put my eyeballs on it, brother. I watched it the other night, and uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. Yeah, well, thanks for being on. So, okay, uh, first of all, did you know this is actually a remake? Actually, I did not know that until yeah. you literally just said it. I didn't know that. So not a lot of people do. Michael Mann wrote and directed this. Um, this is the second Michael Mann movie we've covered on this show. Uh, we did Miami Vice. I saw it for the first time uh, last year. And Yikes. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't like it. It wasn't, it wasn't good. It was dull. It was humorless. It, was like it lacked color. It just nothing. But um, this is really good. So mm-hmm. he had done a movie in 1989 called, um, I'm trying to think of the name of it now. Of course, I don't have it up here. but um, And this is basically a remake of that movie, uh, 89, L.A. Takedown. He, his own movie? He remade his own movie? Yeah, it was, a, it was a made-for-TV movie. Oh, okay. So he actually had this script written um, like early 80s. Uh, I think sometime after Thief. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he had no desire to direct it, so he had done the um, and then he did the made for TV version. Oh, pardon me. <clears throat> and uh, he was working on like a James Dean biopic or something, and ended up scrapping that and doing Heat. And we're all better for it, in my opinion, because this is like th- this for me is the best Michael Mann movie that I've seen. I agree. I was um, going to say that as well. In fact, I did say that when I gave my little mini review on Letterboxd. Um, I've been using Letterboxd a lot in the last year or so. Oh, nice. But yeah, I agree. I mean, it was, um, you know, we recently recorded an episode of my show. I do a top five show, as you know, but mm-hmm. uh, like a top five countdown show for heist movies. Yeah. And we just did that maybe like a month ago, and it, it got a lot of love on that episode. And of course, I hadn't seen it. So A, I couldn't put it on my list, and B, I couldn't really give any commentary on it. My um, guests had seen it, and a bunch of people shouted it out on Twitter. And after seeing it, I am a firm belief that it's definitely one of the best heist movies ever made, in my opinion. And Michael Mann is hit or miss for me, but this was a hit. I thought this was just an awesome film. I mean, you know, you I'm sure we'll get into it, but it was a little long for me. <laughs> it was, it was a, mm-hmm. I feel like it could have easily shaved a half hour here and there um, to get it down to maybe two and a half, you know? But other than that, I mean, it, it, it's a, one of the better heist films I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was a great movie. Oh, yeah. So, it, yeah, and as heist films go, I mean, I rank this up there with, with some of my favorites. And what's funny about it is it's really not about the heist at all. Right. The heist is, like, really secondary to it, which is why oftentimes when I get asked, like, favorite heist movies, I don't think of Heat right away. I think mm-hmm. of a bunch of other movies where the heist is the thing because the, the big shootout, the big uh, bank heist is like two hours into the three hour movie. There's right. still, there's still almost an hour of movie after that. And that's like the big climax. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it's definitely, definitely something else. And, and casting wise. So this movie, when it came out, I remember the hype around it because it was the first movie with De Niro and Pacino. Technically it's not because they were both in the Godfather part two, but they shared no screen time together. Right. So sure. this was, this was them getting to share screen time together. And then they have 10 minutes of screen time. <laughs> pretty, pretty powerful, though. Oh, man, is it ever? Like, So you had sent me a text saying, you know, hey, I started the movie, and you mentioned Pacino being on his game. 
Oh yeah. It's phenomenal in this. This is for me, one of my favorite Pacino roles because like, I just, I love him in this. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't, you know, I don't know. This is might be blasphemy or whatever, but I'm not like a giant Pacino fan. Like I, I mean, I loved him in this and you know, I thought he was great in the Irishman last year. I mean, there's a couple of movies, like he's the kind of actor where it's like every 10 or 15 years, he does something that impresses me personally. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just weird. Like I don't really, he's not really on my radar as much as a lot of actors that I love, but in this movie, I mean, I feel like, you know, had I seen this in 95, I feel like maybe I would have been a bigger Pacino fan for the next 20 years, having heat used as, as like a basis, you know what I mean? But I didn't see this, obviously, until last week. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I loved him in this, especially, you know, the things that I think of Pacino in. There's nothing where I'm like, eh. I mean, every once in a while, it's like, oh, he's okay. But I'm never like, holy shit, he's an amazing actor. But with Heat, that was how I felt. I mean, I felt like he was just like dialed up to Pacino plus ten. I mean, he was he was really really on in this. In my review, I put that he was in God mode in this movie. Yes, yeah, that's, that's what I equated it to. That's a good way to put it. I mean, Pacino for me is like you mentioned Michael Mann being kind of hit or miss. Pacino can do that for me. He, mm-hmm. I like Pacino, and I've liked him in a lot of stuff. But there are times where he goes too high, too much scenery chewing, um, mm-hmm. you know, too much Scarface is what I like to put it. Cause like he, he's fine in Scarface, but there's times where it's just, it's like, you know, dial it back a little. Right. Right. This, this, I think it works because it's all that energy is in bursts. And then there's like, there's the moments where he's quiet. And then there's one line in it where he talks about, he's talking to his wife and he says, you know, I have to, I have to hold on to my angst and I, mm-hmm. I, I use it. I have to hold it inside and keep it. Cause it keeps me sharp. And like it, it totally makes sense for the character. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I think – and then later on in uh, interviews, he said that um, early versions of the script had him with a coke habit, and they cut oh. a lot of that out, but that was where he was getting some of those wild outbursts for the character from. So it kind of makes sense. Well, that makes sense, yeah. That, obviously, that didn't play that way on screen, but that makes sense when you say that because he was definitely outlandish at times where it was like, what is this guy on? You know, yeah. <laughs> Chill exactly. out a little bit, buddy. But, I mean, again, what I know of Pacino – this is one of the better roles that I personally enjoyed him in. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just not, I'm just not like a huge fan of his, but I was a huge fan of his in this. That's fair. And, and meanwhile, you've got De Niro on the other side of it, who is sort of the ice to Pacino's fire, right? Like Pacino is very outburst. He's prone to outbursts and all this. And then De Niro's almost too calm throughout the whole thing. Right. But right. he's so good because it's Robert De Niro, right? He just, he's so good at that character too. Um, right. And this came out in 95, a month after Casino. So you had two three-hour-long crime epics starring Robert De Niro come out within a month of each other. Yeah. Which is weird to think of. Yeah, De Niro really shines when it's set, when Scorsese's behind the camera in movies like Casino, obviously. But, you know, this was cool because it it almost had a little bit of a Scorsese feel to it. I mean, it was a very similar character for him that he really just... I mean, he's got that niche, you know what I mean? Like he can play that kind of heist gangster role perfectly. Yeah. Um, obviously it was an amazing, it was an amazing casting choice. And then when you look back on it and having, and I didn't know honestly that it was the first time they'd shared scenes together until you just told me that a few minutes ago, but having Pacino and De Niro be able to share those scenes together would obviously now we look back on it as historic. Do you know what I mean? Cause those yeah. are two, the two of the biggest actors in the game. And mm-hmm. finally, and finally getting to be together on camera, which is great. Yeah, and there's this, uh, the scene in the diner I want to talk about a little more in-depth in a little bit because that's something else. But I do want to kind of talk a little more about some of the other cast because the casting in this was great, like up yeah. and down. You had Val Kilmer, who was working on Batman Forever at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was kind of doing – I think he either just finished or somehow worked it out so he could start working on this while that was wrapping up. His character was originally um, cast as Keanu Reeves. Which, oh, wow. that would be that would be strange. It would be strange only be only for mid '90s Keanu Reeves, right? Because this would have been right around the time of Speed, where yeah. he's he's kind of trying to break the the uh, tight casting that he was getting. Right. But he hadn't quite. He wasn't. He's not Keanu Reeves, you know, of the last five ten years. So that would have been very different. Yeah. Um, John Voight was playing Nate. And he originally didn't want to do it because he thought there'd be other people better at that role. 
But Michael Mann was like, no, I want to work with you. So he came on. Now, one of the things I was reading in the trivia um, is because as I'm watching this, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of like real 90s look to this movie. You mm-hmm. know, it's definitely uh, looks like a product of its time. And a lot of that was John Voight and that long hair and that mustache. Yep. His character is based on Eddie Bunker, who was in Reservoir Dogs and was a career criminal prior to becoming an actor. Okay. So once I found he was Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Okay. Um, so once I read that, I was like, oh, well, now it makes sense with the hair and the mustache. Like, he kind of has a little bit of that look going. Sure, yeah, I could see that. And he was fine. Like, there, he, you know, his performance doesn't stand out, but this did kind of help re give his career kind of a boost because he wasn't doing much theatrically at this time. Um, well, his, char- his character in the movie, John Voight, was obviously a secondary character. I mean, he only showed up kind of, you know, three or four times throughout the movie, but it was always... Uh, you could tell he was always kind of a centered figure for Neil, you know, for De Niro's character, which I really liked. It was almost like uh, one of the very few voices of, like, down-to-earth realism that Neil had in the movie Mm -hmm. was when he was was talking to John Voight. And I don't know you... Because I remember thinking at one point, and you got to remember I'd never seen this, but at one point I remember thinking, okay, well, he's going to turn on Neil. He's going to be a bad guy. He's going to do something to screw him over or whatever. Right. And he didn't. So it was cool to see that it was an actual like they actually, I feel like, cared about each other, which in this movie, you didn't get a lot of that. It was more about the money or, you know, the job or whatever. It wasn't about relationships, so to speak. But I did get the impression that John Voight's character really did care about what happened to Neil in the end, which I mean, is great. Yeah. And it's funny that you mention that because you're right. If you're watching this for the first time, you keep waiting for who's going to be the turncoat. Who's the guy that's going to give up the crew or whatever. And, you know, you have Tom Sizemore in this who could easily have been that character. Right. And he really wasn't. And I guess there was some parts early, early script that showed more of him as like the grounded kind of family man. Mm-hmm. And they touch on that a little bit with like the scene where they're all having dinner and he's got yeah. his wife there. And then right after that, when Neil's telling him, hey, look, you know, she takes care of you. You can walk away right now. Right. Kind of thing. Um, But that's a, you know, that's somewhat against type for Tom Sizemore, especially at the time. Like watching it for the first time, I might be thinking, when's Tom Sizemore going to be the one to flip? Because it's Tom Sizemore. Right. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, uh, you know, Ted Levine's character was that, I guess. But so here's the funny thing. So he felt like part of the crew to me really right you know and and you sent that text saying hey, ted levine always playing the creepy guy that wasn't ted levine wayne um wayne grow was not ted levine uh-huh um he was the ted levine was one of the cops um the the guy that turns on him, the the creepy one um was a different actor but i thought the same thing watching it this time i'm like oh that's right ted levine playing another character wait a minute oh wow wait okay. a minute no that's ted levine okay so yeah, um, that guy was Wayne Grow was played by Kevin K. Gage, I guess, um, who I don't remember from anything else, but he does kind of give a little bit of that um, sort of uh, Jamie Gum type of feel, and right. uh, and he does sound a little bit like Ted Levine too. But yeah, he ended up being that character, and it was funny because I had a note to myself like, wait, how did he know about the bank score? But I guess he didn't. He just knew about the crew enough to find a member, right? Yeah, because that was a little confusing. uh, I was watching. I told you I had to break it up into two viewings. Mm -hmm. And when I was watching the second half of it the other night, um, my son was taking a shower and getting ready. My son is almost seven years old, so he's obviously too young for this. Right. And he's, uh, you know, getting ready for bed stuff. And I'm like, all right, let me watch a few minutes of it and kind of like, you know, was breaking it up into pieces. And he comes out of the shower in the scene when towards the end, when De Niro is going to confront Wayne Grow in the hotel room. Oh, right. <laughs> and it's, uh, and there's nothing happening. So I'm like, well, I'm going to leave it on for a second. And then, uh, you know, De Niro does a knock at the door, like he's room service or whatever. And, uh, you know, Wayne Grow comes out of the bathroom and gets his gun and cocks it. And I'm like, all right, bro, let me, let me pause it here. Something <laughs> yeah. bad about to happen. I don't know what you just see, whatever this is going to be, you know? Uh, yeah. But yeah, he, he definitely was obviously that kind of like heel character, um, but again, it didn't that didn't seem as surprising to me though because I never thought of him as part of the crew. Like he was right. always kind of, he was always kind of an outcast from that opening scene, even where he was kind of out of place, and they just kind of pick somebody to be part of the the job. You know what I mean? Like yeah, 
like part of the family, if you will. Yeah. Well, he even said like, Hey, you guys are a tight crew. And like you, so you got that feel right away that he wasn't part of the crew to begin with. This was his first job with him. And mm-hmm. once he do, he, he starts the, the crap by shooting the one guard. Right. Um, so yeah, his, his character definitely, but like even some of the other smaller, so we mentioned Ted Levine as Bosco, um, West Studi, uh, and Michael T. Williamson is a couple of the other cops. Um, who, so Bubba, Michael T. Williamson, he's one of the few people in this that I think that looks as intimidating as uh, De Niro can. There's a moment where he, uh, where Hank Azaria, another guy who had just a small role in this, goes mm-hmm. to say something and um, it's Sergeant Drucker just shoots him this look and it's like, I found myself shrinking back just watching it. Like, oh, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Like, he, especially at this point, he has that kind of presence and he's a tall dude. Um, but having, having actors of that caliber in some of these smaller roles, Dennis Haysbert, um, who's barely in the movie, it does lend something more to it because it gives more weight to these characters and they don't feel, they don't feel wasted necessarily. Although you want more, like you want more of it. Like I want Dennis Haysbert in the movie more just to hear him talk because of that damn voice of his. Right, true. Yeah, there were a few big names that, well, I guess I say big as in like now in 2020 that right. I remember when they popped up, I was like, wait a second, is that, you know, such and such like uh, Jeremy Piven has, yeah. he's, in, he's in one scene as a doctor and then um, Henry Rollins is one of the yep. like bodyguards for Van Zant and Danny Trejo. I mean, he had a kind of a bigger role though because he was part of the crew, but I mm-hmm. mean, I love him. So it was cool to see him in it. Do you, do you know what I mean? I wouldn't obviously. We didn't talk about it yet, but a young Natalie Portman. Yeah, her second movie. See her, yeah. Yeah. I guess guess this must have been after The Professional. I didn't look at the timeline. Uh, Yeah, it must have been, because I'm pretty sure The Professional was her first first film. Yeah, but she looked about the same age, so it must have been maybe just like a year or so later. Probably. um, But it was great to see her. I mean, you know, kid actors can be intolerable at times, but I, I mean, I love Natalie Portman, man. I loved her in The Professional, too, but she was even younger than she is in Heat. Uh, so I, that was great. I didn't even know she was in it. <laughs> I, I, I forgot until I saw her name come up in the, in the opening credits. Like I'd forgotten she was in it. I forgot Jeremy Piven. That one surprised me. Um, Tom Noonan, who has a small role as, uh, uh, Kelso in the wheelchair gives him the bank heist. I right. love Tom Noonan. Right. Um, Tone Loke. The rapper. Yeah. Tone Loke. <laughs> He's I in mean, what scene? I'm like, what? <laughs> yep. And he had just done, I guess he had just done Ace Ventura a couple years before this. I think Ace Ventura was like 93, I think. Yeah, that would have been about right. Yeah, so, but that was crazy. But yeah, I, I like that because, you know, seeing it so much later, you recognize these people. But I guess in 95, maybe you wouldn't have recognized all of them. Yeah, not all of them. I mean, by 95, like, Hank Azaria might not be uh, a household name in terms of, like, on-screen acting, but he'd been doing The Simpsons for a few years. And he was, I think, working on The Birdcage at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sizemore had been doing some work. Um, sure. He had a young Ashley Judd. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but but it's it's great to get these really high caliber actors in these roles, just because it just it just gives you so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I do want to talk about a little bit later is I want more of this. Um, so I kind of want to go into depth of that a little bit more, but like I want more of this world. I want more of this story. Yeah. For sure. Um, Danny Trejo, always, always great. I love Danny Trejo. I'd forgotten Henry Rollins was in this, and it turned, and he, okay, so there was a plot point that confused me, and that was how they found out about the bank heist, how the cops did. Mm-hmm. Because they bring in Wayne Grow, Fink, William Finkner's character does, the um, Van Zant, the, the b- businessman. Mm-hmm. They bring in Wayne Grow, and then if you listen, when they're, when they're talking about where they got the tip from, it was from, uh, Hugh Benny. So it was Henry Rollins' character that called in the tip as a right. criminal informant. So one, how long had he been a criminal informant? And two, like how did they get that information from Wayne Grove? Because how would he have known about the bank heist? They didn't find out about that until after they had gotten rid of him. So that mm-hmm. confused me up until uh, they find Danny Trejo beaten up. And that's when they kind of fill that blank in. But, you know... At the same time, like it makes complete sense why De Niro would immediately suspect him because he's yeah. the only guy that wasn't there. He wasn't there, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a credit to Michael Mann and his writing for like tying up loose ends like that because for a period of time there, I was confused again because I hadn't seen this movie in a while. 
Mm-hmm. So some of those some of those moments kind of lose you know leave your brain, but um, right. no, it's and and uh, another little one was uh, the construction clerk right at the beginning when Val Kilmer's buying the the explosives was yeah. the um, lawyer from Jurassic Park. <laughs> he did look familiar, but I didn't I, even bother <laughs> trying to place him. But yeah, I do remember thinking when I watched it, like that guy looks kind of familiar. Yeah, I was doing the same thing, and then Xander Berkeley too is another guy that I really like. Uh, he was Ralph. He was the guy that was uh, sleeping with Pacino's wife. Right, right, right. Yeah, he's, I know him as well. He's one of those, like, that guy actors where you see him, but then you can't remember. You can remember maybe what you saw him in, but you can't ever remember his name. Like, I never remember his name as Xander. <laughs> right. Um. So, okay. When I say that I want more of this, like, you mentioned that the movie is a bit long. It's, it's almost, it's just shy of three hours long. And it is. It's a it's a bit of a slog to get through, honestly. I'm with you. There's a lot they could have cut to get this down to a two fifteen to two thirty, uh-huh. um, really easily. Or you can go in the other direction, which I was thinking about, which is make it into like a short form miniseries, like uh-huh. a six to ten episodes, and flesh more of this stuff out. I think would would be really cool because there's a yeah, lot of interesting would- stuff there. Yeah, this would play easily as a great like drama series, you know, uh, a la The Wire or something to that effect, where it's like you know every week there's kind of a new heist or a new plan or you know uh, or, somebody turning on somebody or you know, and then not only that but exploring like the relationships and the friendships and stuff like that. So I could easily see this being played out over several hours if they did like what you said, where it was like a TV series or even a mini series, but taking it you know, for what it is as a film, um, you know, I mean, I felt like there were times when Michael Mann was just showing like how great of a filmmaker he was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind no, of showing off different camera. Th- you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying they weren't good, but I'm just saying in the, in the essence of the story and of time, uh, you know, they weren't needed necessarily. Do you know what I mean? Oh, definitely. Uh, and it's just tough with young kids too, man. So I, I mean, it's me, it's not the movie, it's me, but uh, you know, I need a quick, like two hours. I'm in, I'm out, you know? So, uh, that's the only reason it didn't get a perfect 10 score for me though. It's just cause I feel like they could have shaved 20 to 30 minutes off of it. Yeah, no, I am with you. Like you can like things that I was thinking about today that you could kind of shave out of this where the, the first scene with Dennis Haysbert and his, and his girlfriend, when he goes to the diner, like you no. don't need that. He can easily just pop up as like, Hey, remember that guy? He was in you know prison with us later on in the movie. And you don't necessarily have to have that backstory. There was, um, the whole subplot that was literally one scene and then never done again with the uh, prostitute and Wayne Grow killing her. Oh, right. Uh-huh. And then they just ignore that for the rest of the movie. Like, it never comes up again. And they even say it's a pattern. They've seen a bunch of them. Right. So it's like that, you know, so when I'm thinking of, like, a series, like, that's a subplot, that's a thread that you could have pulled on and gotten more out of. And, I mean, you already dislike Wengro. Right. I mean, you don't need people, to do that, too. So, like, I think they were doing that in an effort to, you know, show that he was a piece of shit. But, I mean, <laughs> you know that already. Like, you know, right. you, don't, you don't connect with him. Like, you don't like him from the very beginning. So, I don't think it was necessary either. But it does show the level of just, like, evil that he is. You know what I mean? Which, yeah. I get it. But I'm with you. That's five minutes that you could have cut right there. You know, and it wouldn't have taken anything away from the whole plot of the film. Yeah, and you know, there's there's other bits and pieces you could have cut out. They could have cut out uh, the whole subplot with um, uh, Chris's wife, Ashley Judd, um, with the like. I mean, I guess in a way, it, it sort of worked, but like that that stuff with her, because then later on, you know, there's a way you can write it where just Chris gets out of it, and he mm-hmm. he just disappears, type of stuff. I had forgotten for some reason I had it in my head that his character died in the shootout. Oh, really? Along, along with Tom Sizemore. I don't know why, mm-hmm. um, but I just I knew he got shot, and for some reason I thought that was the end of him, and I'd forgotten about the scene where he shows up with his hair cut and, and all that. But, um, yeah, but I did, I, I don't know, I, unless I'm forgetting something, I, I wasn't really, I, I don't know, I was, guess I was disappointed in his quote-unquote send-off because, he, you know, he came and saw her one last time, you know, like what you're talking about, mm-hmm. and then kind of got away, and then that was it. Um, yeah where all the other main players pretty much went down in a, in a blaze of glory for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, but he just kind of vanished from the story and, and he was one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite, I just liked how sub- subdued he was and kind of like, 
you know, kind of like quietly participating throughout the film. I, yeah. I don't know. I felt like he was almost like, you know how in a lot of heist movies, there'll be the one kind of like silent genius. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I kind of felt like that was him, even though maybe that wasn't him, but I just, that's how I felt. And then just, I don't know, he kind of disappeared, right? Or am I forgetting something? I don't no, think you're, you're right. He just sort of, they yeah. they stop him. He's got the fake ID and the fake registration for the car, and they let him go, and that's it. You never hear about him again. Right. That's what and I was thinking. Yeah, so. you're, you're not wrong there. Like, they definitely, it feels like they could have given him more. It's almost like they just didn't think about, or they maybe they had something for him and they cut it, which, you know, is possible given that this movie was already three hours long. Um, <laughs> sure hard to say um but you know you had tom sizemore goes out in the um and it was weird too because his character would like come and go uh when they do the um uh the metal um foundry thing where they're trying to drill and they end up walking away from it like, oh right huh. where where was he because he had climbed up the pole and then you never see him again oh yeah maybe that was an editing snafu yeah i'm, I'm not sure there like there, I mean, any movie's gonna have plot holes. Um, oh sure, yeah, yeah. But I do want to talk. Okay, so one of the most famous scenes in this movie is the diner scene, mm -hmm. right? And first of all, um, Christopher Nolan has cited this movie as one of his favorite movies, and it was a big influence on his uh, Gotham trilogy. Okay. So when when Dark Knight came out, and I saw it for the first time, I immediately thought of the diner scene from Heat mirrored in the scene in the interrogation room in Dark Knight. Yeah, I could see that. Sure, now that you mentioned that, I could see that for sure, yeah. And that scene, that diner scene, is so well-crafted, so well-put-together, and such a great, just two actors getting to just act the hell out of it with each yeah. other. Mm -hmm. um, what's really interesting is how they shot that. So they, they actually just set up two cameras um, and basically kind of did it live. Um but they didn't rehearse at all prior okay. to it. So De Niro was like, no, let's, let's not rehearse. I want that kind of unfamiliarity to really bleed through. So they just, him and Pacino didn't rehearse it at all. They just sat down, did it. Mm -hmm. And from what I saw, most of what was in the movie was like, take 11. So, I mean, that's just two actors that are good at what they do to get that kind of emotion and that kind of like performance out of each other and improvisation and, and throwing stuff back and forth with no, like they didn't try it out at all beforehand. Yeah, I mean that that that's exactly what that scene is is what you said about I mean it's an acting clinic that scene. I mean it's literally like you know inside the actor studio and just two of the best just showing you, you know how it's supposed to be done. Uh you know, it, I don't know about the believability of it. Like I don't know if the lead detective for this would be, you know, trying to <laughs> schmooze up with some with one of the criminals for coffee. Um but if you suspend that disbelief a little bit and just say, okay, well, and you just watch the scene for the craft, uh, what it is, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, I went back and watched that scene again because you had mentioned it to me as well. And I went back cause I wanted to make sure like I was just really invested in that scene. It was only a few minutes, but it was just a powerful exchange between two actors and two of the best. And actually you mentioning the dark night scene, um, you know, it's obviously good versus evil and it's kind of like, you know, I do what I have to do. You're going to do what you have to do. You know, you think yours is right. I think it's wrong. You think I'm wrong. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's kind of exactly. like, that's what they're basically telling each other. And they're also, that scene also kind of lays the foundation for like a mutual respect between these two characters. Mm -hmm. And that, that comes back to life in the end where, you know, I mean, I don't know if you want to give spoilers now or not, but anyway, no, <laughs> At the end, you know, it kind of goes back to that scene or like it makes you remember that scene because you get a sense that these two would rather be together doing whatever they're going to be doing as opposed to being enemies. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes back at the end as well. And uh, I had a little bit of issue with the end, but I'll wait till you're ready to talk about the end. Okay. But, but yes, I do love that scene. And I feel like if nothing else, it's just a powerhouse acting clinic. Yeah, so uh, a few things on that. Number one, the, the actual story, um, Michael Mann based this movie around uh, an actual thief named Neil McCauley. Okay. Um, and uh, it was, from what I was reading, he wrote the script as a tribute to a friend of his who was a cop. So Neil McCauley was a thief in Chicago. And there was a real detective. And the whole diner scene 
while probably embellished quite a bit, actually happened. Oh, this cool. guy yeah. actually sat down with the with the Neil Macaulay. Um, the the detective did like he ran into him somewhere and they sat down and talked like it was one of those things where he couldn't he had nothing to get him on at the time mm-hmm. so like it's it's funny how you mentioned that because it, it does feel it feels like it's totally Hollywood like it could yeah, never happen made up for cinema I mean I just wouldn't expect mm-hmm. something like that to happen but I guess if because he pulled him over remember initially mm-hmm. he pulled him over for like speeding or whatever it was and then he was like hey man you want to grab some coffee I mean I don't know I just that doesn't seem like real world to me, like what an actual detective would do. Yeah. Now, if he ran into him at a diner and he happened to be at a diner and he saw the guy that he's investigating, yeah, and he, like sat down to like you know do what they did, then maybe that'd be a little more believable. Um, and I'm and, not saying that I'm not saying that it ruined it for me. I mean, it was it was oh, still no. amazing. I just in my mind was going, would this really happen? I mean, come on, dude. Like, yeah. Well, no, and and I totally get that. And you're right. Like the the way in which they got to the diner is the less believable part of it for sure. Yeah, but that, that's the thing Michael Mann did a lot of was he really would um, try to be as realistic or pull things from real people as he, as much as he could. Yeah, so, really, yeah. you know, Macaulay's based on a real person. Wayne Grove's actually based on a real criminal. Um, they had uh, Dennis Farina was a technical advisor on this, who was an actual Chicago cop prior to becoming an actor. Okay. Um, which is why he acts so well as he acted so well as a cop all the time because he really was one. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and and just that, just sitting your two leads down, and you're right. It's this like each one knows who the other is. You know, De Niro, you know, Macaulay knows that like he, this guy's whole drive is to catch him, and Vincent knows that um, Macaulay is going to do whatever he can. And there's like this mutual respect between the two. And it was just such a powerful scene and to, to do that and then see it mirrored, you know, 10 years, 13 years later or whatever in a superhero film was kind of neat. But yeah, it's just acting one oh one. like put, put two people down and then a credit to Michael Mann to be like, yeah, let's just shoot it. You guys do your thing. I'll get the hell out of the way. Mm -hmm. And they did great with it. Yeah, I agree. It, It was, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's action sequences in the film that, might be more aesthetically pleasing, but just as far as like from an impactful standpoint, that was probably the most impactful scene in the movie, just because it really sets the stage for the two main characters and kind of like what they're going to do for their end result. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, so impactful wise for me, it's that scene and then the bank heist shootout. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the scenes that are you know most referenced from this movie. That bank heist, a few of the things about that that was amazing. Number one, the heist itself is very short, um, and there's not a lot to it, right? They just get in. They get everybody down on the ground. You see them taking the, mo- the money out. It's, it's all the aftermath mm-hmm. as the cops show up and as the shootout begins. The way that they shot that was really neat. So instead of putting all the gunshots in in post or re-recording them and putting them in post, they just stashed microphones all over in there and got, so you get a lot of that like real life sound. That's where that booming echo on everything came from. And like, it felt, I don't know. There was like a feel to it. That was more almost hyper real. Almost like you're watching on the news. as opposed Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. And you know, you've got the sound of brass hitting the ground and all of this and the way that they moved. Now I did read, and again, this is, trivia so take it with a grain of salt but that that scene gets shown sometimes to uh you know marines or british sas as like the proper way to retreat from fire and advance and reload and all this kind of stuff Mm, Um, okay and uh they took they, they just they did a ton of work to get that to look right and when you're watching it it's like yeah they're moving with military precision and they're these guys are really good at what they do right and um I really liked how, and I didn't really, I didn't realize this until I was reading the trivia about it, but all of the cops fire everything in semi-automatic mode. Whereas Macaulay and uh, Chris and, and all the, the robbers are full automatic. Okay. They don't care okay. about the bystanders. They're just trying to get out of there. The cops are like semi-automatic, trying not to hit people. Right. Um, which I thought was interesting. Makes sense. <laughs> which makes sense. Yeah. Uh, probably what would happen, but I didn't, I didn't notice that either. But it's definitely just like 
and from from a production standpoint, from just shooting uh, a scene like that, it's just so well done. And then, like I said, that sound and the feel that you get throughout the whole thing, and it goes for a while. Like it's a pretty long scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, I um, you know, I really, I really enjoyed that scene too. I, I don't know. I feel like, and maybe this is from a first time viewing perspective but i feel like i enjoyed the opening scene with the armored truck more um but i think that was a better scene though the bank high scene is a better like better well-made scene but i enjoyed the opening scene more i'm not sure why though i think maybe because it set the stage for me of what it was what this was going to kind of be about you know that could be like that's the first thing you got was that scene and it it, just like the bank high scene it's really well done it's really well put together right um, so I can see that, and, you know, who knows if you watch it again, maybe you'll, you'll look at it differently. It's hard to say. I but... want to, and I want to, I want to, um, you know, I rented it on streaming, but I'm going to actually purchase it. That's how much I enjoyed it. I don't know if there's a 4k um, version of this movie, but there is, I'm going to get it. And, uh, I think I'm going to rewatch a few scenes like before I sit down and watch the whole movie through again. Yeah. And that bank high scene will be one for sure. Um, that I'll that I'll give a nice rewatch to, but it, I mean, it was really well made. And hearing some of these kind of like behind the scenes facts about it makes it even more intriguing to me. Yeah, um, I thought, and I didn't realize this, there was not a soundstage used in this movie. Everything was shot location. Uh, so it was like sixty-five different locations around LA that they used. Michael Mann, dude. <laughs> oh, I know. Some... <laughs> it's just crazy That's to think cool. of, but sure. now this was ninety-five, so this was shot on film. And one of the things that I kept thinking of watching this was how much better this looked than uh, Miami Vice, which yeah. is also Michael Mann, yeah. shot a lot at night, but that was early digital. Because like, he, he jumped on the digital bandwagon early with Miami Vice, with Collateral. There's yeah. something about, and, and he loves to shoot at night too, which I get, but there's something about the look of, especially that early digital, that didn't work at night. that. Right that you just, you don't get that same, because this has a lot of the same color palette. It's, I kept remembering, because I, like I said, I hadn't seen this in quite a few years, and then Miami Vice is much fresher in my mind, so I kept remembering Miami Vice while I was watching this. Yeah. And it's a very similar kind of color palette that they were using um, for both of them. I don't know if, it, I don't remember if it was the same director of photography or not. This is, this is, we've already kind of talked about it, but this is man's best movie, but I do love collateral. That would probably be my number two of his. Uh, and I want to say that was probably in the digital age of man too, collateral, but it was, I would say this is his best movie and that might have a lot to do with it. To be honest, is kind of the authenticity of the filmmaking, you know, and just having that kind of old school vibe to it, even though it still feels like a updated man movie. Yeah. Yeah, because like I said earlier, you know, there was parts of it that really felt 90s. But in a lot of ways, you you could see this as like L.A. today. Mm-hmm. Um, change a few of the vehicles around maybe. Um, but even that. Uh, but no, just the look like, I don't know, there was something about the, the look of it, the way... The way yeah, everything was shot at night, just... Yeah, it's one of those things you can't really explain, but I understand exactly what you're saying when you're saying it. And then I feel the same way. It definitely... It definitely has a a different look to it, but still familiar, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but yeah, just a gorgeous movie. Uh, I agree. And you're, I don't know if there's a 4K version, but you're right. A 4K version would look great. There's only one moment where um, you could kind of see anything going on, and that was there's a shot with um, Neil and uh, Edie, where mm-hmm. they're they're say, standing out on the balcony or whatever, talking. It's one of their when they first meet. And the way they shot it, you can tell it's green screened. Oh, yeah, I didn't notice. Um, now now with, I'm going to notice. When you watch it again, you will. But what, what they did, and I was reading about this because as I was watching, I'm like, man, that's that's definitely green screen. Michael Mann really wanted to get the look of the background. So they shot the background plates at like three frames a second so they could just jack the exposure way up and mm-hmm. really see all the lights. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that properly, they had to do a green screen. So they that was like one of the few times where it wasn't just a straight location shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's really the only one. And even so, like it still looks good. But my I don't know that I've seen too many movies now where my brain starts looking for stuff like green screen. Right. No, I get it. Um, I'll have to look for that next time I watch it. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> 
Well, that's now a testament to the filmmaking. You were engrossed in the film. Um, and she was one, I forgot to mention, Amy Brenneman, uh, who mm-hmm. played Edie. When they gave her the script and she read for it, she she didn't like it because mm-hmm. of the violence and everything and like the, the lack of kind of human emotions. And uh, Michael Mann was like, you're perfect for the role then. Mm-hmm. Like, use that and, and do my movie, please, type of stuff. So, like... You know, I ragged pretty bad on Michael Mann for Miami Vice. I think what I said when I was watching it was like, it felt like watching a movie based on a show that the guy had never seen before. And I'm like, but I know it's Michael Mann who helped create Miami Vice. Right. But it, then I think my... about like this and how good this is. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I know you're not talking about Miami Vice tonight, but I mean, I that was just a huge disappointment for me because I, I watched that show with my dad in the eighties mm-hmm. and uh, I love that show. And I feel like it's such a great like archetype for a movie, you know, for a, like a big cinema kind of like blockbuster, you know, kind of almost like bad boys, the bad boys franchise, yeah. but, but better <laughs> and, you know, a little bit more dramatic maybe, mm-hmm. but it, I don't know. It just missed it, man. He just missed the mark on it. And I know there's, a few people that are on board with it, but I, I just was really disappointed with Miami Vice. But you know, then you have something like Heat, what we're talking about tonight, and it's like a, just a one eighty, bro. I mean, this is like a masterpiece of cinema, yeah. and it's like the same guy doing a very similar <laughs> movie, and it's like weird that one is just amazing and the other one's like, what the hell is this? You know? You know, and you have to wonder. Some of that is expectations, I'm sure. Like you yeah. or I going into Miami Vice, we have this idea of my, what Miami Vice was to us and then we watch that and that because that movie you don't call it Miami Vice you call it Heat Part 2 it, right. I probably enjoy it a hell of a lot more because yeah. it's what it felt like <laughs> that's true actually so yeah. I mean there's a little bit of that in there too but no this you're right like it's a total 180 because this is just I mean this is a, a solid eight and a half nine out of ten mm-hmm. um, easily it's just it's so good and it comes down to it was written really well it was directed really really well and which is again pretty impressive when you think about the fact that he didn't originally want to direct it. He actually gave it to uh, the one name I did read was uh, Walter Hill, and Walter Hill turned it down, so he ended up doing it himself. But then and then casting, whoever did the casting for this, I can't remember her name. I saw it pop up in the credits, but she deserves a she deserved a raise. Yeah, because it's just I mean one after yeah. the other like. Every one of these names I I see, and I'm like, oh, I love that guy. Oh, I love that that person. Oh, I love her. Like Diane Verona as Justine. Right. Uh, I remember her from The Jackal. Um, right. And it's just you know, it's it's good filmmaking. And then to do all of it on location too, that's crazy. Yeah, but I, they pulled it off. They did. They definitely did. And it has one of my uh, one of Al Pacino's greatest lines. Um. So. <laughs> This was another one of those little trivia bits that just makes you chuckle. Um, when Now, I'm going to play a sound clip for you because I, I captured it. But when Pacino is talking to uh, Hank Azaria's character for the first time, and he yells, uh, he just freaks out and yells. Because she got a great ass. That was ad-libbed. And, uh, you're uh, kidding. Yeah, and, no, I, I, remember, uh, I remember hearing that. I'll let you say what you're going to say. But I remember hearing that scene. And thinking, I hoped it was ad lib because it was so like different from everything that I had been watching for two hours, and uh, I felt like it was almost like a meme, almost. Yeah. So it I'm was, not saying it was bad, but it was just so kind of like crazy. Yeah. So it was ad libbed, and um, not only was it ad libbed, but apparently Hank Azaria said the the look of fear on it, my face is not acting. I was genuinely scared at that moment because he just busted that out of nowhere. Um. Yeah. And it's like the one moment of levity in the entire movie. Yeah. And that was my one complaint with Miami Vice, too. He has a moment in the beginning, too. And I wish I had taken notes on this when I watched it, but I, you know, kids all over the damn place. But there was a scene early on in the movie, too, where Pacino went a little kind of off kilter when he went to see like one of his informants or something. And Mm. I can't remember what he said, but I felt, you know what I'm talking about? Yep. It's when he goes to see um, the dude that I saw in this, and I remember that he was like in CSI or something. But um, yeah, he that's the other moment where he has another one of those freakouts. And now if you think about it, when you watch it again, think about the fact that 
um, his character is supposed to have a coke habit. And right. It'll, it'll make that, a lot of sense. Like, right. When you said that, that scene came to mind. I was like, okay, well, that would make a little more sense then because that scene and the great ass scene that you just played mm-hmm. were, were the two scenes where I was like, whoa, what happened to this guy? Like, this <laughs> not what he's been doing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it makes sense everything that you're saying with the coke habit and with the ad limit, ad limit. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a funny moment in an otherwise unfunny character, you know? Yeah, well, in movie as a whole, like there's not a lot of levity in the movie. Period. Um, right. It's a very somber movie, but you know, it also it kind of sticks to its theme. I mean, twice in the movie, Macaulay says, you know, look, you have nothing in your life that you can't walk away from in thirty seconds flat, and he says it, and then he says it again later, and then he does it at the end of the movie. Right. You know that that's a pretty powerful scene when he's coming out of the hotel as everybody's running around and there's the fire, you know fire department and all that and he sees her he's standing right next to her and then he catches vincent out of the corner of his eye and realizes he's got a bolt like he can't he has to do it and that as he says in the diner scene that's the discipline and so that's like for me that was a pretty powerful scene yeah i agree and it it was partly you know to save her too Mm because i mean obviously she would have been an accessory and whatever else so um you know she doesn't see it that way i'm sure and i could see why uh amy brennan didn't want to do that role either i could see i could see why i mean mm-hmm. uh because i mean that character is not written well from like a female empowerment standpoint I no. mean, she's definitely uh kind of submissive and going with the worst possible guy that she could be with uh even after he does what he does and you know and then she gets left in the alleyway literally yeah uh, um so i could see why you know an, an actress that was you know all about empowerment would not want to take the role um but kind of like what michael mann said when you mentioned it earlier that's why she was probably perfect for it too yeah Uh, because she probably held that kind of reluctancy in her character also in real life you know what i mean yeah um oh i forgot about this uh so we mentioned ted levine a couple times and um thinking that he was the the character of wayne grove apparently he was originally offered that part yeah, that's crazy. I can't believe I didn't because you we were texting about it, but you didn't mention that to me. But that's just crazy, man. I, I thought the whole until we sat down tonight, I thought the whole time that was him. Well, and what's funny is you mentioned that. And so immediately in my head, I'm like, oh, that's right. He played that character. And of course, you know, it's Ted Levine. He He's great at those. And then I yeah. start watching the movie and I'm thinking that until he shows up and he starts talking about like he starts recreating what happened at the crime. And yeah. that's when I realized, wait a minute, that's Ted Levine. So who's this <laughs> other guy? And then I read in the trivia that he was originally offered Wayne Grow and he turned it down because he didn't want to get typecast. Yeah. So well, he goes on to be Bosco. Here we are still typecasting, typecasting him 25 years <laughs> later. Yeah. Um, oh, and another moment of uh, improvisation was his story when they're sitting around the dinner table. Uh-huh. And he starts telling that story about his friend from uh, Raul or whatever. I guess that was complete. Like he just made that up on the spot, that whole story. Um, wow. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, yeah. I did like. I did like that scene um, where you've got all the cops together at dinner. You got all the, the criminals together at dinner, I think in a later scene or something. Yeah. Like there was a lot of moments of that. That where was you would... cool. Yeah. The, the one is particularly with the, with the gang, with the, the gang of thieves was reminiscent to me a little bit of the Sopranos television program, which mm-hmm. was one of my favorite TV shows ever. Oh yeah. It kind of reminded me of that where it, it gives the audience like a human connection to these pretty despicable characters. Yeah, uh, and I, I thought otherwise it would have felt out of place, but I felt like that that Michael Mann did it really well in that one particular scene, and then you have it juxtaposed with Al Pacino and the cops having dinner and him, you know, leaving and his wife getting left there and she's pissed off and that you know adds to that whole dynamic that they have and she yeah. ends up cheating on him and their marriage is obviously on the rocks and it kind of gives you that viewpoint too. So I like how like what you said, I like how they did the cop dinner and they did the criminal dinner and they kind of showed you both sides from a human element. Yeah. And, uh, and apparently that wasn't very far off from reality either. According to, um, Michael T. Williamson, who said that part of like research for the roles was Michael Mann set up a dinner for all of the cast with the cops. Okay. So all the, all the cast that were playing cops had dinner with a bunch of real LAPD. And then all of the, cast that were playing the crew had dinner with actual criminals um that were known 
known to be criminals at like this restaurant where cops and criminals apparently do that. I don't know. I'm not sure, you know, you got to take all this with a grain of salt, but it seems like that was a way to give them an idea of like what these people are like when they're just socializing with each other outside of work. Because that's one of the few things in like cop movies, you don't get a lot of kind of groups of people doing stuff outside of work. You might get one or two, but it's, it's not as common. Now Sopranos obviously did, but that was based on, or that was centered around that family. So that kind of makes sense. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was like a lot of moments like that in this movie. The, the whole thing where they're in that, um, uh, that like yard with all the shipping containers. Oh, right. Uh huh. And then they all leave and the cops go in and they're standing there. And when Pacino figures out what's going on, mm-hmm. like that's brilliant. That's such a that's, great reveal that was, on that scene. Because I, because as a viewer, I'm like, what the hell is this? What are they, what is they doing? Cause I thought they were doing another heist that was there or had something to do with that, sh- the shipping containers. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, they're going to develop, there's some new plan going to roll out here, which is going to confuse the hell out of me. <laughs> So then I was a relieved that it was what it ended up being, but also it was cool too because it also again shows you how Pacino and De Niro's characters are basically the same. Like mm-hmm. they're from a level of genius and just like dedication to what they do, uh, because they can kind of you know guess each other's movements because they're basically mirrors of each other. One's good and one's bad, you know. Yeah. And that scene really helped show that too to me, where I was like, okay, well if anybody can figure out what Neil's doing, it's Pacino, yep. you know, and he did. So, and I was also relieved because I'm like, okay, thank God. I can't, do another, <laughs> I can't do another elaborate heist within this three hour movie. You know? right. so that was and, and one last thing I did want to mention was I liked that there was a scene with, so you had, you had uh, Pacino and his wife and it's his third marriage and it's on the rocks and it's all rough and all that. And, I'm glad they didn't end that relationship with the scene where he yells about his TV and leaves. Right. And then you throws know. it in the car later. <laughs> yeah. So you have the scene where they're at the hospital and you get this feeling like it, it feels like a real relationship because they still care about each other and he really cares about her daughter. But they also know they just can't make it work. Right. They're just it's not gonna work between them. They're not gonna reconcile and get back together over the trauma of her daughter trying to kill herself type of thing, like this Hollywood thing, it feels like a real relationship. And so while that might, that whole subplot with the, with Natalie Portman's character at the end, mm-hmm. I might have cut out to make the movie a little bit shorter Right. with it in there. I really like that scene because it just, it made him feel like a real person and it made yeah. that relationship feel real. Yeah, I agree. And it showed that he, he's married to his work. I mean, that is what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, He's married to, uh, you know, chasing down these bad guys like Neil. And, you know, even in that scene that you're talking about, I mean, he ultimately leaves to yeah. pursue Neil, uh, which, you know, obviously, you know, that's the, the climax of the movie. So he had to from from a movie making perspective. But I mean, I also feel like that's probably what happens to, you know, hundreds of thousands of cops and detectives and whatever is they're just married to their job. Yeah. And, you know, that. I mean, unfortunately, there's probably a high divorce rate in, a, in an occupation like that. Right. So I like that. I like that, too, because it felt very real. It did not feel like, you know, a made up movie scenario. Yeah. Now, you had said something earlier on about you had some issues with the ending. So we're kind of yeah. getting to that point where we can talk yeah. about the end more. So and are you cool with spoilers on this? Oh, yeah, no? absolutely. Okay. No, this movie's been out for 25 years. If we're spoiling <laughs> it for somebody, that's their own damn fault. <laughs> I know. I was posting on one of my friends' page uh, the other day about The Sixth Sense, and somebody was like, spoilers. I'm like, bro, are you serious? Like, it came out like 25 years ago. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to make sure. But, yeah, I mean, my issue is really a personal one. I mean, you know, I'm going to – there's nothing wrong with it. Don't get me wrong. But mm. I just – I don't know. I didn't want either of them to die. I didn't want, uh, particularly De Niro, like I wanted him to prevail um, in kind of this life of crime because, you know, he mentioned it a few times throughout the movie and I know he didn't end up with the girl and stuff, but he mentioned a few times like this was it for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was going to be the end for him. Like, you know, he told John Voight that he had kind of a getaway planned and he just couldn't let Wangro go and he had to go back for him, which is what ended up, you know, being his demise. Uh, again, he's married to what he's doing, so mm-hmm. he can't go off and live in the Bahamas or whatever it was that he was talking about. He had to do what he had to do as part of his quote-unquote job. 
Uh, but I just, I don't know. I, I would have liked it to end in like a mutual respect, like they both kind of got away uh, in in a way, uh, or at least maybe leave it ambiguous to where we, where we weren't sure. I'm not sure how they could have done that necessarily. Yeah, that um, would have been tough. But obviously they showed us concretely that, you know, De Niro uh, got shot. So I don't know. I just, in my mind, I also didn't see it coming, which doesn't happen a lot for me because I don't know. I don't know if it's my bias that I like De Niro as an actor more than Pacino. <laughs> like, so maybe I was inadvertently like pulling for him because I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't know if that played into my psyche a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Cause I kind of, in this, I'm, I'm sort of the same way. Like if you make me choose, I'm going to choose De Niro 10 times out of right. 10. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it wasn't bad. Don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. we're talking about how great the movie is. Uh, <laughs> You know, the ending didn't ruin it for me or anything like that. I just, I would have uh, probably enjoyed it more if they both had lived at the end, I guess is the easiest way for me to put it. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it is a very Michael Mann ending to the story because in in some ways, like, you're right. They're sort of telegraphing, you know, De Niro wants out and and, and he's setting all that up. And it's almost like, I don't know, when I was watching it again, I sort of felt like it's almost like the only way he can end it because if he doesn't, then if if he does live, then what does that mean for Pacino? Like Pacino doesn't get any closure at that point. True. And uh, meanwhile, you've got De Niro who sort of gets away with it and you're right. Like if he hadn't gone back for Wayne grow, he gets away. Right. So it's sort of like the, because as I was watching it, there was a, there's a moment when he's driving in the car. They and right as they hit the tunnel, and he says, uh, "I can't remember what exactly the line was, but he says something to the effect of like we 'We're we're done, we're out.'" And they hit the tunnel, and there's like a almost like a white flash uh-huh. as the light hits him. And I'm thinking, "Oh, that's right. He gets away at the like again." I, I'm forgetting stuff in this movie, and I'm thinking he got away at the end, and that mm-hmm. was sort of like him. It's like a visual kind of shorthand of like. Something and then he decides, nope, I'm going after Wayne Grow anyway, and so right. that's he pays for that. Um, right at the end of the movie, I did and also, I guess, oh, and I ahead. guess also, and I guess also to kind of correct myself, maybe a little bit too. I guess also, you know, Neil's character would probably be okay with that because he, you know, I don't think he would have been able to quote unquote live with himself had he let Wayne Grow go and went, you know, to the Bahamas. Oh, like yeah. he wouldn't have been able to enjoy his life if that if he had left that unfinished. So I think he knew the risk and reward factor. So in a roundabout way, he was probably okay if it was going to be the end for him because he had to do it. You know, in his mind, he had to, you know, finish that job and he had to take care of Wangro. Yeah. So because if you think about it, like he goes after Trail because he thinks he betrayed him. Right. Mm-hmm. And yep. he's ready to kill him and then take off. And once he finds out that Treo didn't like didn't give him up on purpose and was, you know, basically tortured, he wants Wayne Grow. And right. he even t- says to Nate, like, at at one point, I'm gonna go after him and he's telling him, No, don't do it, type of thing. Like mm-hmm. John Voigt's trying to get him not to do it. But you're right, he couldn't have lived like Neil wouldn't have would not have been able to quote unquote retire knowing right. knowing Wayne Grow is out there. Right, it just would have eaten him alive, and you got the sense of that from the type of you know character and how dedicated to what he was doing he was. And same thing with Pacino from the detective side. Uh, you know, if he had not caught him, or if he had you know gone off to to fly off to the par- to paradise, then the same thing would have happened with Pacino's character, where he would it would have just eaten at him forever that he didn't get Neil. Do you know what I mean? So yep. again, they're mirrors of each other. I mean, they're basically the exact same character, just on different sides of the law. Yeah. Um, which I mean, I like that. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying that's a detriment to the film. I, I enjoyed that that aspect of it. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, you you said it right. It's a masterpiece. This is a great film. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it. I'm glad that I was able to get you to watch it. It just amazes yeah. me that, it, uh, you know, what I know of you and your, like your taste in yeah. movies. It, it no, surprised it's... me when you said you hadn't seen this one. So, <laughs> no, it's crazy, man. I mean, I. Uh, you know, like I said, it came up on our heist episode about a month ago, and I'm like, yeah, and I was kind of shamed for it then. <laughs> But I knew we were doing this, or we had talked about doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told him on that episode, I'm like, well, I'm going to be going on a podcast to talk about it, so I know I'm going to be seeing it in the next month, you know. So, <laughs> and I did, um, which which is great because I loved it, and it, it is right up my alley. Uh, it's very Scorsese esque, 
Um, and I don't know how I went, you know, 25 years before I saw it, but, uh, I'm glad I corrected it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did too. And, and I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. So, um, it was great. Yeah. Now you do a podcast. It's called two peas on a podcast. Why don't you let, um, people know what that, what that is and where they can find it. Yeah. Well, thanks Travis. I mean, you're a great supporter of my show too, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, it's, it's pretty, you know, basic, man. I mean, we have a good time. I have guests on rotating guests every week and we just do a fun top five list. It's, uh, almost always has to do with movies, music, or TV. Uh, you know, sometimes we throw in pop culture stuff just to be different. Uh, this upcoming week, we're going to be doing our top five board games for people that are in quarantine. Nice. Uh, so that episode was a lot of fun to do. And, uh, we just did our top five bands of all time Ooh. from a music perspective. Yeah. Because- I, I saw when you posted that and I immediately thought I can't like, I can't even Oh, it's intense, dude. Uh, it was intense to come to narrow that down. As, that's the case every week, though. You know, you try to get it down to five of whatever the, the category is, and it can be a, a little bit of torture. But yeah, you can find us on Twitter at two peas on a pod, and that's T W O spelled out. And then uh, we're on Podbean, and we're on every podcatcher imaginable as two peas on a podcast. And uh, we just do a fun top five show. And uh, yeah. I hope I hope you some of your listeners come over and check us out, man. I hope so because uh, I'll tell you I listen to it a lot and I love the show. Um, I Thanks, like man. the I like the list. I like the fact that you get. It's not like you'll have crossover on your list, but it you don't have the same list. Like there's always some dissension, and and you do a good job of like it's not forced. Like there isn't a. I don't know. I, I love the lists and I like the topics that you find, uh, even when they're hard for me. Like I always try to come up with my own whenever I'm listening to it. Like. Yeah, yeah. We, and I'll often throw that out there to have people, you know, give me theirs too. We do a thing called the suggestion box, which mm-hmm. you've, you know, you've given a lot of great feedback over the years too. But, you know, it's funny you say that because recently, you know, I lost my um, stable co-host that I had and we're just doing rotating guests, which has actually worked out really well. And uh, I'll just have a, a another podcast or a friend of mine on to talk about whatever. And it's funny you say that because I'm letting them pick. So I'm not going to take any, the last few months. I'm not going to take any of the credit. I mean, every once in a while, uh, you know, something will come to my mind and I'll know somebody that's into whatever it is like horror or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, Hey man, I got this great idea and they'll, they'll come on and do it. But generally speaking, I would say eight out of 10 times, my guest will DM me or I'll be talking to them and they'll be like, Oh, we should do a top five of this. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And then I'll come up with a list and, and we'll do it. So the guest are picking you know 70 or 80 percent of the topics but hey, thank you hey man, no i know how i know how you feel because that's that's basically how i figure out this show um because <laughs> i designed it originally there was going to be a stable co-host but we we could never work out the um the timing of it so i went with the rotating co-hosts and nine times out of ten i let them choose like I, yeah. when i talk to you i'm like well what's a movie you haven't seen um yeah and, and it's cool too, especially you know, especially for the show I do because it can get redundant. I mean, I, I'm going on four years doing it, but what's cool about doing it that way too is then you get somebody that's passionate about what you're talking about. It's exactly. Not like trying, it's not like you're just trying to fill the recording. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if somebody comes on and it's something that they chose and that they're passionate about, then I mean, I can come up with a list. You know, what I mean, I can get a top five of pretty much anything under the sun, uh, and I'm going to enjoy doing it because of my show. You know what I mean? Right. But, uh, to be able to have that kind of like passionate back and forth and conversation is great. And, uh, you know, like we, I was just talking about top five bands of all time. I mean, you know, Andy, the guest that I had for that pitched that to me and you can hear when he's talking about his bands, you know, he's talking about how he shared them with his father and, you know, when he came into them and like, you know what I mean? So it's like a very passionate conversation about whatever the topic is, as opposed to like, Oh, my number five is like, you know, whatever, because you know what I mean? It's very, it, it, I, I appreciate you mentioning that because it does come across, I feel like, in the conversation. Yeah, well, you know, lists, list shows are uh, are popular for a reason. And I do like list shows, but I there are certain ones that are just better, and it's the passion. It's a, that's the perfect word for it. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. I can come up with a list of top five anything. You give right. me a topic, I'll give you a top five in it. But right. when you find that thing, and you get that person, they're like, yeah, the, and, and you, you can hear the passion in their list. You can hear why they chose those things. Like, that's that's really great. And that's one of the things I like about your show. So, Well, thanks, man. Keep, keep it up. I need, I need to get you on there. you got to come up with the top five. I'll, I'll work on that. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll get in touch but with I you. Really, I really do need to get you on there. I was telling you on on uh, the Messenger chat the other day. I just can't believe you haven't been on because uh, I've admired your show for a while, too. So well, we got to make that happen. Definitely. But, uh, I'm going to force you to come up with a list. But uh, All right. when, you do, when you do, let me know. Okay. I'll do that. but And I want to thank you for coming on here because this was a ton of fun. Um, we'll have to do it again. We'll find another movie or we'll find a movie you like that I haven't seen. I've done that too, and that's a lot of fun for me. 
Well, we um, were going to do that. So what's next? We were going to do that. What was it? Unforgiven that you hadn't seen, right? Or was it? There was one that of my favorite movies of all time that you told me you had. It might seen. have been Unforgiven. Have you seen Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood? Uh, you know, I actually haven't. That's it then. That's the there, one. Okay, there we go. That. I was like, well, we can do that right now if you want, <laughs> want to, because that's one of my favorites, like ever. I think, in fact, I ranked my movies recently. I want to say that was like my two or three of all time. So oh, nice. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah well, so that we can do that as a sequel if you want, but yeah, that sounds good. We'll we'll start working on that. Um, but yeah, so uh, so I do this show weekly. Um, normally, um, I do a live stream of it Sunday nights. Um, we uh, we altered that this week for you, but the show comes out on Wednesdays uh, once a week. Um, I haven't missed a week. I've missed one week. I take that back since I started. Um, you bum. I know. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, this show is on Apple Podcasts. Anywhere you can get podcasts. And the easiest way to find it is my website, which is tvstravis.com. Um, if you do listen to it and you can leave us a review on any of those uh, platforms, that helps us out a ton. Um, but, yeah, next week um, I have uh, one of my one of my co-contestants on America's Next Top Podcaster, David Luzader, who actually won season two. He's coming on, and we're going to talk about Saving Private Ryan because uh, nice. he's never seen that one before. And I, I'm looking forward to it because I haven't watched it in a couple years, and I love that movie. That is a good one, man. So Tom, Tom Sizemore again too. Yeah, it's true. He's going to end up being like one of the ones we get a lot of. You should just do all time Tom Sizemore movies. I have to watch, it. get somebody who hasn't seen Strange Days. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's going to be next week. So uh, until then, what I always like to tell everybody is to enjoy your movies. And uh, especially in this time of quarantine and all the weird stuff that's going on, be excellent to each other. She got a great ass, and you got your head all the way up it. Can you imagine a world immune to all forms of cancer? Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for our fourth annual live stream for the cure. And this year, we need your help more than ever. Please join us May 27th through May 31st for 48 hours of live content from guests and podcasts around the world. We'll be aiming for our most ambitious goal to date as we try to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com for more information on this year's event and how you can be a part of it. Together, we can make a difference. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>